Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Pharmacy Podcast. Hey, everyone. Uh, Welcome back to the Pharmacy Podcast. Uh, Today, I'm going to talk to my really good friend, Shannon Larkin. Shannon Larkin is the drummer for Godsmack, and you've been the drummer for Godsmack for what, 20 years? Yeah, over 21 years this year. Crazy, right? Right. I first met Shannon when we got to know you, and you played with us on the Happy Pills tour after Barty and Dave left. That's right. And I remember thinking, man, a whole new shot of energy has entered this band. That's awesome. Yeah. So I was in this punk band called Amen. I remember that. And the great John Reese was managing. And so he knew that we had just done our record and had a two and a half, three month uh, waiting period while they set up the record before release. And I had nothing to do for three months. So he said, it's perfect timing. Yeah. But I had to come audition. I didn't just, y'all didn't know me from Adam, sure. right? Yeah, I was brutal in that band. What do you mean? Like I thrashed the drums apart oh, right. in that band. And it was about just hitting as hard as you could right. and violent bursts, blast beats and, and punk rock speed, you know, and, and gnarliness and the singer Casey would just trash my drums every night and do the Kurt Cobain thing where he just would run and jump. I'd jump back off, you know, behind the kid and he'd just smash into it. (laughs) And it cuts you and bruises you all up. Like he was crazy, man. Yeah. But I must say I had such fun on that candle box tour. Oh dude. It was a different thing. You know, it was like the energy when Kevin, you know, at the time went with the long blonde hair, he had the kimono And you were all in black leather, the glasses. It was just a badass thing. Yeah. You know, Spider looked cool. And, you know, I dressed like a punk dude or something. I remember the suit with the pins. Yes. <laughs> do you still have it? Yeah, oh, cool. I do. That's awesome. I do. So I have to go back and tell you that in 89, when I was working at Tower Records, I used to just walk through the record store looking for things. And I remember seeing... This was Rothschild America. Yeah, yeah. And I l- grabbed the tape and I looked at the song titles and I saw Time. And I thought, no way. It's not Pink Floyd time, is it? So I took it home and I put it on and it was time. And I thought that was the coolest thing ever. And so when you came in and joined the band, I was like, oh, yeah. And so I had a connection to you years before you ever got in the band. True, man. Yeah, that tripped me out. You know, when you said that, I was like, wow, because we, you know, we we did a rendition of it that was very close. Like Terry played the lead, just like it. You don't Mm -hmm. change that, you know. Can't. But you just put a couple. Yeah, yeah. You know, little things, metal it up a little. But David Gilmore, we like kill you in three notes man well that's the key (laughs) is that he could hold one note and that's really what my solo in you is all about was i was a huge gilmore fan and i you know i hit that note and i thought i'm just gonna stay here because it felt so good very very gilmore-esque yeah you know hey 
if if we wear our influences, we wear them on our sleeve, mm-hmm. right? And so I always say this: it's it's not you don't rip off from our our peer or our influences, our heroes. You're influenced by them. If right? you're so, true to your nature of being yourself, because people literally like will rip sh- stuff, just steal it. And yeah. I never wanted to do that well, ever. I don't mean no. You don't, and you didn't. But, you can tell influence. That's correct. what I'm saying. But yeah. then you have licks too. That you have your own Clint. thing. Yeah, your of course. Sound like, and you can tell if you listen across the records that you're the lead guitar player, right? You know? And yeah, that, yeah, yeah. that's the thing. From not not just because you hold a note like Gilmore. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, there's a vibe Like to I it. will make my guitarists and my blues bands hold notes hold the note there yeah. you know be gilmore <laughs> but be gilmore you know because that again with the fingers thing in me but everybody sounds different you, not everybody can hold a note like dave gilmore mm-hmm. you know and it's not just his fingers it's his tone the guitar the amp it's what know. he's envisioning as well yeah he's you know. he's in it he's in it right he's in it i'll put it in my perspective pete if I do a hiddle 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 fill, mm-hmm. I can't not think I'm ripping off John Bonham. Sure. Right? But the thing is, is if I didn't play a triplet B like that, I would have never heard John Bonham. Because any drummer that heard that was influenced by that and started using it. It's not ripping off John Bonham. That's influence. Yeah. Because then the triplet can now be one kick drum, floor, snare, that. Right. Hula, hula, sure, hula. Sure, sure. And then you cross over, everybody start making all oh, their uh but it all started with, with John Bonham in rock and roll. So who big, was your favorite drummer? It would it was Would it start with Bonham? So I can I can run it down real quickly. Calling Dr. Love on the radio. Kiss. Yeah. Kiss. And my mom Which and, is very simple drums too. Very simple. Right? Yeah. I mean it had the cowbell uh Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. And but then blat do do blat then the beat was and I remember being able to play along like that with it right away, and so with me what happened was and why I'm not saying Peter Chris because I loved Kiss I was eight years old so I had a record player and I got I made I asked my mom this will show my age. there was these commercials on TV and be like, K-Rock presents the hits of today or whatever. Sure. And Kiss Calling Dr. Love was on it. So I asked my mom, dad, order me that record. And so I would just play the Kiss song. I'd play like, I remember the Funky Worm by the Ohio Players was yeah. on there. And I would play that song. And there were songs that I liked, but mainly I would just play that, that Calling Dr. Love over and over loud in my room. And finally my sister, who was two years older than me, came in and said... <laughs> It, why do you keep playing the same song over and over and over? I said, well, it's the only song I have. And she goes, well, you know, they have a full record, Kiss. And you can buy that. If you like that song, you'll probably like the band's record. I didn't know. Sure. Like I said, I was eight. I was into football and stuff. And she goes, but in the meantime, here, borrow this. And it was Rush, Hemispheres. Oh, cool. And I put that on, man. Right. And it blew my changed mind. everything. Yeah. It blew my mind, but it didn't make me go, I want to be a drummer. I loved the lyrics, the story, mm-hmm. and I wanted to write lyrics, and that was my first love. I still have that record. The actual? With, with my sister's name, because back then- Is it then, a tape or vinyl? No, it's vinyl. Gotcha. And so she wrote Shelley Larkin, and uh, <laughs> and I still have it. That's awesome. Anyway, I wore that thing out, and I go, what, you were right? 
you know, this band, and uh, it's blown my mind. What do you got for me next? She sure. gives me Led Zeppelin Which two. Which one? Oh, two. Yeah. And dude, that's when all of a sudden I go, I'm going to be, I want to be John Bonham. Yeah. And, and, uh, and I always read books, even from a young age, from my mom's side. And I loved to read like mm-hmm. autobiographies. And I read the Zeppelin one and oh man, I just, right Wait, away, oh. I was drawn to this. Hammer of the Gods, right? World, Hammer of the Gods. So good. That's when it wasn't just drums. It was everything. I wanted it all at a young age. Playing clubs by the time I was 13. Really? And Terry Carter was 15, and he was like me, man. He, Wait, which band was this? Well, it wasn't a band yet, but it was called, at the time, Tyrant, and uh, and Tyrant played Shugs. So you could get into the bar just for the show, and then you had to leave? And my parents had to be there. Of course. Because you couldn't get a work permit till you were 16. Right. By the time I was 15, two years later, mm-hmm. the, my band which we had changed the name to Rothschild in 81. We we were big enough in the local bars that the bar owners no longer made my parents come and started serving me drinks. So <laughs> what? how old were you guys when you did that record? When we did the record, I was 19. Terry was okay. 21. So you were a band four years, and then you got a record deal with who? Atlantic. That's incredible. Yeah, man. It took How us many records did you six do? years. And then we, we, we signed a two plus whatever. And after two, they said, yeah, no no more plus. <laughs> right. So anyway, but at least we they gave us a second record. At that time, there was a big fear. They were just signing bands. If your record flops, boom. So we sold like 85,000 of that record, Climbing the Walls. Mm. And then, and we were sweating, you know. And they said, all right, you can do another one. And they gave us Alex Perialis, who had produced uh, Anthrax and some of these thrash bands. Even though, as you know, we weren't thrash, I don't remember but we did band. thrash songs, you know. And so we were way too eclectic, Rothschild, for our own good, you know. In our defense, we were from West Virginia and Maryland. And everything is a, is a soup bowl where I grew up, man. Like, mm. like when, when the whole 1980, 81, you know, when we were already on like Priest and Saxon, you know, before that, it was Rush and Aerosmith and Zeppelin and all that. Then it started changing in 80 to like when we discovered metal, like Iron Maiden, Iron Maiden, Judas Priest. I didn't discover Priest until heading out to the highway yeah. came on okay. the radio. And that's the thing. I grew up on the radio and sure. my mom had the radio. We had this big ass kitchen <laughs> and she would always have the radio on to a rock station, you know. They didn't play instruments, but they loved music yeah. and had a big record collection. I ended up with all my mom's, like, Sly and the Family Stone oh, records cool. and just, oh, man. And my dad had all the, like, Elvis and uh, doo-wop stuff and and as well, as well and, the, and the real country stars, like mm-hmm. Johnny Cash, Waylon Jennings, Willie Nelson, you know, all the... I play uh, Glenn Campbell, Rhinestone Cowboy for my kids when they're bathing. That's one <laughs> That's of my favorites ever. Song, I love that what song a lyric. so much. You're in it. Yeah. You, you're in him. Like you can feel that street. And I really don't mind the rain. Yeah. You know, There's it's a, like, <laughs> the strings in the chorus. It hits this one note, and it, but it's not expected. And even as a kid, I was drawn to that. Uh, and I show my kids. They're like, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. But yeah, cool, Dad. You know. The one thing I noticed first off right away was your energy as a drummer, but also how high up your hi-hat is. 
Yeah. Why is that? What happened was I jump on a basketball in my own backyard, four or five of us playing. The ball goes, it's starting to go out of bounds. I jump on it. I heard the snap and it, my collarbone snapped. And back then they put a cast around my whole body. Like they put my arm, like if you hold your arm tucked in yeah, and then they tucked it against my whole side, my Mm -hmm. arm was tucked against my side. And so that my wrist was able, so I could use my hand. Mm -hmm. So my hand was right out the front of my chest. And then they put a hard cast on around my body. So I lowered my hi-hat super low and raised my snare drum super high. Mm. So now I got my wrist so I can, you know, my hit, but my hi-hat had to be low. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't even have went high enough for me to play over top of how high I had to put my snare because of my cast. And so when I got the thing off and I, and I moved the hi-hat back up and the snare back down... I become accustomed to playing with my left hand over my right. Mm. And so I discovered a move. It's hard to, to explain but I, without you seeing it, but you can see it. So if, if people can use their imagination uh, where if your right hand is on the hi-hat mm-hmm. and it's one, two, three, four, and typically the snare is on two and four, one, two, three, four right Mm -hmm. and so if i'm used to having my left hand over my right but i want to get it back to traditional my right over my left it became one two three four Mm. and so next thing you know i'm doing this thing that i'd never seen any other drummer do and what it was really impressive to people in a club seeing this kid do this Mm -hmm. what the wow they say oh he's angus young on the drums you know that's what, like if it's flamboyant or whatever, drummers back then, even my favorite drummers, Neil Peart and John Bonham, you know, they weren't really, tr- tr- you know, doing I don't know, moves yeah, and sorry. thrashing and banging their head like Angus. And mm-hmm. like Neil Peart would throw sticks though, 30 feet in the air, you know, and catch them. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't a showman showman, you know, he was perfection. Yeah. And Bonham was just a beast. Yeah. So but you see some of the early stuff, he was headbanging back there, you know. But your hi-hat was so high up, though. Yeah, so it right became... Right now, to the So day, the answer to, the to your questions is for the looks, really, for that move. Okay. Because it became... Then I... So I it gave could, you the room to switch your hands around? Yes. And I, I go to the top of the bar. Right. You know, on mm-hmm. the on the hi-hat mm-hmm. stand, and it's it's usually... They don't make them, you know high enough but over the years i have lowered it again okay but not as low as most dudes yeah. but it's still lower than what it was when it was i remember like just that is so way up there when you joined the band yeah yep i met sully 17 in 1986 i met sully arna and he was the drummer for this band that opened for Ratchild in North Carolina. Wow. And we just hit it off. He ended up in my room, my hotel. We're partying, girls. Sure. We're just hanging out. And we're like, yeah, dude, let's exchange numbers. Back then, there's no cell phone. You know, we wrote our numbers yes. down, put them in your wallet. You yes. know what I mean? And then, you know, as as he ended up moving back to Boston, which Ratchild played frequently, you know, for four or five times a year, we go to Boston. And... Would uh, he come out to the show? He'd come out early and take me to go do my laundry sure. like we were homies. And um, 
you know, our, our, our dynamic changed so much. And when I joined Ugly and went West, you know, I didn't see him every year anymore. And six years passed or whatever. And, well, no, four years passed and I get a, a call from him. He's like, dude, you got to come join my band. I just joined Amen. And we had just got signed mm. when Sully on a call and said, we have every major label. Deals are on the table. Universal, Atlantic, Polygram, all, you know, everybody. They sold 20,000 CDs or whatever at shows locally right. to where they charted. And they charted at radio because AAF started playing this song, right? And so it went nationwide. And there, it, when it said label on the Billboard chart, there was nothing. And so every so he, he told me all this stuff. And I was like, well, dude, the problem is I just signed a deal with Amen and we Ross Robinson. And I've been right. getting my drums destroyed by this maniac for two years in clubs. <laughs> I need to make this record. I can't jump yeah. during your band, but good luck. Mm -hmm. I, all right, man. Which song charted? It was, was whatever. Hmm. I think whatever was the first one and then keep away or keep away might have been first, then whatever. Interesting. Which I'm doing the best I ever did. Oh, that song. That's whatever. Crazy. Yeah. That so that was that popular before they ever got a deal. Yeah. Well, no, it was keep away in Boston at AAF. Gotcha. And then they, when the record came out though, uh, whatever was the single okay. and then voodoo did really well after that. I remember. So he went ahead and just played the drums on that, that which was a demo they thought but then it ended up they just so they literally remixed that demo yeah well they they, they pressed it first and they called it all wound up and that's the version of the first record that they sold like twenty thousand plus copies at shows before mm -hmm. they even took a deal mm -hmm. and then when they got the deal they recorded another song which i think was voodoo for the for that record and then just had that all remixed and mastered and uh, released it as just Godsmack, self-titled. But Sully played the drums on that, but they got Tommy Stewart by then, whose picture was on that record. And Tommy Stewart actually helped write one of the songs on that record, Bad Religion, got a writing credit on that. Tell me about the Turtles. So it was seven years ago, seven and a half years ago, when I got divorced. And so I bought this it's house. It's been that long. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I got this house out in the woods here, and um, I, I got a koi pond, and it was it's 20, 20 foot by nine foot, and it's like in the shape of a figure eight kind of open though, mm -hmm. you know. So it held like I think I had fifteen hundred gallons in it, right? Wow, <clears throat> and it's two and a half feet deep, which are the typical depth of of most koi ponds, man made, and so. I lived like that for a couple years, and I, I had 11 koi, and I fell in love with these fish, and I started meditating around these fish, and it, it became something that became integrated in my life, more so because of the pandemic, and for the first time since I was literally 16 years old, I didn't tour or go play shows. I didn't leave. This place that you're sitting for two and a half years and i don't mean i'm a hermit i i go to the publics and of course my mask and plastic gloves they fool me into wearing or whatever <laughs> yeah. if all else fails i could start a business and, and build ponds cool like, literally you know and you love doing that kind of stuff i love doing it so when did the turtles enter the picture my buddy said hey man 
you should put a turtle at your koi pond. They're, they make great, great uh, accoutrements to a, a, a rad pond. Mm-hmm. And he goes, I got some. You, know? <laughs> you just happen to have some. No, no. He, oh. This dude sells koi. Um, he also, he's a bonsai master. So he turns you on to turtles. Yeah. So he says, come back here. Not only just take one, but I go in the back and he's got a giant pond back there too with all koi fish, sure. wild koi fish in it. It's a wild pond, I mean, so the big koi fish and um, a bunch of wild turtles. He captured a turtle, give it to me. <laughs> I come over, I put it in my pond and man, it just, it just, I found myself looking at that turtle as much as I looked at my fish. Of course. And, and next thing you know, they're more personal than fish too. Now their little eyes look at you or whatever, and you're yeah. like, oh, he sees me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unbeknownst to most folks, koi fish are, are different than regular fish, and they're smarter maybe, or, and certain ones in my pond will come right up to me, and I can literally reach in and pet them. That's awesome. You know, and they, they know and trust, you know, me. So one turtle led to another. One turtle led to a second one, and that's when I went online. And that's when you started looking at the turtles from India and the well, albinos. No, no, not that was just three years ago. So, for the first three years, I I started with one turtle and then got a pair of Mexican ornate sliders. And so I watched my Mexican ornate slider Lily lay probably 12, 13, 14 eggs. Man, they just kept popping out. I was, saw it. She was laying them in this hole she had dug. And um, then she covers it up, and that's that's all it is. Like some people, are, oh, you got to get the eggs. You know, you can take them inside, and you can put them in a thing, and put lights on them, and and you every one will live. Right. But I'm like, I'm not a breeder, and I I have a a, a limited sized pond. Like I'm not a I'm not I don't want to sell my turtles. These are pets that I adore. Plus, and, you want it to just happen naturally. Yeah, and so there it is. Out of that batch. There was 13 at first, and then they all just started dying off in mm. the first year to the point where you would think, well, that's not right. Well, I, I went to the reptile vet, and you know, there's over 70 different parasites that can kill a turtle. Really? But they're all visible, whether it's little black dots under the gill or white. Is that why you clean them all the time? Yeah, you got to check them. You got to check mm-hmm. them. The fish, too, I, I can't you know, check them. But with my eyes, you can yeah, check. Sure. Yeah. So I discovered this place called Bach Tower. Hmm. You heard of it? No. It's in central Florida. It's in the highest elevated part of our state. Interesting. And this guy, his last name was Bach, B-O-K. And he was uh, a Dutchman. And he was in the 1920s or might have been the 30s, uh, what we would call today a billionaire. So his son comes to the great state of Florida and ends up falling in love with the fauna and the trees and the plants. Oh, my God, he'd never seen anything like, hey, daddy, billionaire dude, Mm -hmm. I want to buy some land in Florida. Buys like 200, 300 acres. They own it to this day. And he built this eight-story singing tower, and it's ornately carved marble man it's beautiful mm. and around it is a huge moat like in like you see an old movie sure. where a castle around yeah, a castle right. with two big bridges and 
normally, if it wasn't 2020 in a pandemic, <laughs> yeah, you could walk over these bridges and go in and see the, the big machine with the bells and all right. that. But they had that closed off that day. And so they have machines that you put a quarter in and they spit pellets out to feed goats. Sure. You know those yeah, little machines? Yeah, I do. And because the water that's attached to these 20 acre ponds or whatever these giant lily pads and all this well then it goes right up to the moat starts around there off the pond so it's deep water so when you're looking in these ponds we walked up you can't see any fish and then you do the quarter thing or throw the thing in and these koi, beautiful koi right and they were they were gnarly though because it's a wild pond you know they were some of them were scratched up um another fun fact koi the average lifespan take a guess 30 years outrageous take another guess <laughs> 80 one to 200 years stop one to two a fish a fish will live that long one to 200 years is their lifespan wow. and so this fish if, if the guy did it in the 20s or 30s this fish was probably a baby then that at least not this fish i shall i'll say 50 of them dude that when they came up out of there their heads were as big as pit bulls that's what they look like wow. pit pit bull skulls these fish they must have been have you ever seen a big carp yeah that's what they they're part of the carp family okay and so and and the thing is i'll tell you this from experience i had a nine by 20 foot pond we've talked about pond right i got what's called a copper penny koi they're all colored like copper they're the smartest koi they they'll come right up he's the guy that comes right up we right out of my hand i could pet him cool if I'm swimming in the pond, when I'm swimming in a pond once a week for maintenance, <laughs> you know, full full mask, wetsuit, the whole nine. I'm I got to clean lights and what, stuff here at your house. Oh yeah, wow. Yeah, you can, and you know, I can't. You can't swim, swim, of but you, you you know, you're you floating get down there. Like your back is, you can feel the air on your back, mm -hmm. the sun on your back rather. Um, and you got to pick lights up. It's only three feet deep. But this, uh, the copper penny koi, they grow to their environment. And gotcha. so when I busted out from 1,500 gallons to 35,000. So the fish grew? The fish bigger. all went out and they started exploring. Next thing you know, big boy, I call him, you know, <laughs> Goldie's his technical name when I bought him. But he was probably, you know, a couple feet. Man, he just, he's huge. Hmm. And it worked. So what year was your daughter born? She was born in 98, 98. 25. So she was born the year you joined our band. She sure that was. was 98. She and sure then it was. was done by 99. And then you went home. And uh, that's when Amen started, right? That's right. And so Amen was how many years until Godsmack? Four, four and a half years. So were you home for the birth? Or maybe five. I was. Oh, that's good. I, we planned that, and we did it around. We still, even though it was punk rock, we still wrote songs and had labels, so we, we, we had deadlines. Of course. So we knew that's how I got to play for your band. because, because I, of that gap of time. And it was John's, perfect. If yeah. that had been three months later, y'all would have set out, it wouldn't have been Shannon playing, you right. know? So I got lucky there, you know, and, um, and I got lucky... Not really luck. I planned it out meticulously. So you went home for the birth. You were and like, said, I'm going to be there. Yeah. like and, it, and that was at the very end. So I said, like, we had, like, this record coming out, Roadrunner. All right, we're going to tour all year for sure. 
But wait, was she born before you joined us or after your that was over? Okay. Yeah. So you were uh, in the I band. Know, Amen. I do remember specifically saying to the guys, I'm planning this. I'm going to have a kid. Yeah. We've decided that we're going to start trying. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so um, when we end the record cycle for our first record, before we go in, so when I need to know an approximate time, sure. you know, that the longest we would tour. And then I'm going to take off and see my child born. So anyway, when they said, okay, so next year we'll be done by this time or whatever, then okay. And I went and told Faye. So you we, tried to conceive at a certain time and so we that did. she was born and it worked out. So you have the baby, you're home, you're being dad, everything's groovy. And then they say, okay, Shannon, it's time to go. And be a punk rocker. Right. And with this dude destroying and it was Jeez, that band. Did that was, start to annoy you after a while? No, I was doing it too. I oh. was in it. Like I like I loved that band. Right. And I was like, oh No, the destroying of your drums. Yeah, I was you're in. I would grab a cymbal stand <laughs> yeah. and throw it in the crowd. Okay. And and so it became a you, you, you when you're in it and 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 like, you know, and people start smashing things, yeah. it's very uh addicting. Right. So then you go out and you do this tour. And then you're like, I gotta go. I'm going home. See my kid. Yeah, I go home. So you all go home bruised for, and bloodied. <laughs> so you go home for what? A couple of months. Well, it depends. You know. You right. know. But it do you remember? You go home a couple of weeks. I a remember month. leaving for three months one time. Right. Leave my That's wife hard, at home right? with the kid. Yeah, she didn't like. Nobody liked it. You know. Um, but the kid, luckily, Jess was too young to remember that. Of course. The first couple years did were Did she struggle with you being a rock star and touring all the time? Later, she did not. Um, she was a really well-adjusted child g- growing up. She was, um, I would say, perfect, but she had colic. Just crying. Constant. Yeah, Nothing made stories. her happy. That would be so hard for it your wife so, to be so home hard. alone. Did she have family around? No, well, I, I got the first six months. Somehow... I, maybe how I timed it was, oh, that's what it was. We ended the first cycle, but writing. So I would leave four days a week, but I'd drive my 6'4 Impala to LA where the band practice. From where? Hour and a half, Santa Barbara. Because okay. Ugly Kid Joe, I still lived in Santa Barbara. Joined a man, they were LA. So I had to drive down and back four times a week because I had a kid. Of course. But I timed it to where we had gotten off that first tour and I knew... And how long do we have to, for the record? Six months to write the record we had. Mm-hmm. And we had switched from Roadrunner and we got a, a deal with Virgin, which so it was more money. We, it, things were better. We had plenty yeah. of time. Yeah. So I, I, like I said, I got lucky, but I did time it meticulously. So back to your daughter's born and you're going on tour. What was how did she handle it as she got to be five as she got to be 10 as she yeah, got to so, be in her teen years like what you were obviously coming home from the road but does she ever have like you know dad i wish you were there or was it like i totally get it i had a great life yeah she did good. she's that thank god yeah. you know she she uh she understands and she 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 seemed to understand way beyond her years when she was younger of why daddy had to go and and i was i was you know an alcoholic but for the most part i was a fun dad yeah. you know what i mean and yeah, i yeah. always played with her like 
and we 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 always had just a very special relationship where I you know when I was home, all my attention went to her. And, That's good. And I mean, I and I still the nighttime. I still had the night. I remember. You know, hard alcohol with you was not your friend Mm-mm. back in the candle box. And this was eight ninety eight. You became sober in what year? Oh, my God. It was seven and a half years ago. So mid-2000s, 2015. Yeah. 2016. 16, yes. 2016, if it's yeah. been seven years. Was it hard for you to stop? Was it a, this is a no-brainer, I'm over it? For no, me, no. it was, I'm done. No, I went to, I'm that dude that, you know, has the maybe genetic issue or something, but I, I couldn't stop. I went to rehab. I couldn't stop either. Oh, okay. I went to a 28 day program for sure. Oh, cool, cool. Some people can just stop. Tony Rombola stopped. Well, I did that with cigarettes, but alcohol was different. It was, you know, it was ingrained into my daily routine. Yeah, me too. We're, we're, we're enabled. So you went to a program? I did. I went to recover. Did you do the steps? I did. All of them? I did them. Yeah. And I went to. I guess I went one through five and six maybe, but I never went. I didn't. I did AA because it was, you're supposed to do it. And I was desperate enough to get sober. And when I was in rehab, I tell the story like I, I went to the seminars and I did the classes and I did the homework and I paid attention and I wanted to get sober. I was done. But I stopped going to AA because I felt like it was more of a bad influence and drama than anything else. I don't even it's go It's definitely, uh, I did the, did your, did your rehab place make you do the uh, 60 meetings? 90 and 90. Whatever it was, I did it fully. Okay, I did good. everything all the way to the end, man. Right. And, um, and then I... By the end, three months in of being sober, mm-hmm. I'd already understood. In fact, I think when I left rehab, I was done. I understood. They, and and it, may, it leads me to say out loud, therapy works, particularly the th- therapist I had. You know, she, whatever happened, I, 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 did, I no longer wanted to drink, and it wasn't hard. That first month in rehab was hard to me, but when I got out, I did 90 days of of these uh meetings got a sponsor and um after the 90 days i told kevin my sponsor i called him over to my house i said yeah man i don't want to go back to these these meetings the last month to me has been re making my own bad memories come back to me that's the thing about you know it's and almost it's like, worse it's it, worse it's almost more temptation at a meeting then away from a meeting because yeah. your mind is not there. It gets back into that zone of when you were yes. first going. So right? you're thinking about, oh, well, gosh, you know, maybe it wasn't that bad. Or I remember when we had the greatest time ever because people will talk about their great stories and then the horror stories. Right. But still it plants that seed. of Like to me, it was like, I don't want anything to do with that. I'm out of here. Me I've too, got man. a new life. I'm sober, done, over. So I've I've thought of this much, Pete, and I think that, you know, we can't look at it as a a negative part of AA. What we can look at it is, is certain people should continue AA for the rest of their life. This becomes part of their, like my sponsor, 
you know, and it's, it's, it's just, he really feels that it's, 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 it's a forever thing. And even sponsoring someone, imagine that now you, that would be yeah. bad for me. Yeah. So then we're you're different. In, you're, yeah. We're different. We, Maybe. You know, but AA worked for both of us. I have two friends on this planet that had cancer. One of them had lung cancer. And the doctors, oh, you, you're dead, basically. You know, you, you have two years, you know, if you, but we'll try this, try that. Lung cancer, right? This was, this was in the early 80s when he was struck with it. And he got a hold, and at the time it was illegal, uh, Rick Simpson's oil, it's hmm. called. And it's derived from cannabis somehow. The roots, everything. Sure. is. It's not just the leaves or the bud or whatever. It's the whole plant. And it's an extensive process. And, and so this guy, he invents this, this Rick Simpson dude, invents it in Canada. Of course, Canadian government said, you, know, you can't sell that. He's like, but I'm curing cancer. Yeah. Nope, you can't sell that. It's illegal. That's a drug, right? And so he put it up online, the recipe and, and how to do it and how to make this oil. Well, flash forward to a couple of years later, my friend, he drives to Canada this is like 1985, six, whatever. And he gets diagnosed from doctor's lung cancer, drives up to Canada to get this Rick Simpson's oil, comes back three months later, his doctors are dumbfounded. Really? And yet no one, you know. He, he was cured? He was cured. And it he went lived away. the rest of his life. He's here today. Uh, tell me about books. You collect books. You're really into books. You showed me all the cool books. Um, lots of occult books, but you're not into worshiping Satan. It's a collection. It's a, um, a theory. It's um, an outlook. It's um, an adventure to what? What's it about for you? So basically, when I was 19, my first drum tech ever, Al Carr gave me he got from the maryland public library in frederick maryland a book called magic with a k in practice and theory by alistair crowley crowley is what most people refer mm -hmm. to him because of mr crowley oh, right yeah. Yeah, i swear everybody knows Ozzy but it's pronounced song. crowley it's pronounced crowley rhymes okay. with holy and um, he he wrote in that book also in a in a, in a in a code, and so I later learned the code, and to be able to understand his writing. But what got me most about it was his actual prose, and the words that he used, and the the way he explained things was different than any of the other books that I'd read on the subject, and so I fell in love with Crowley basically, and started looking for all his books. And so, you know, back then you could, you could find books in bookstores and, and stuff like that. They weren't, you know, they would, they would gain lots of value later, but I didn't know that, you know what I mean? And so, um, once I started really collecting, when I had the money to actually start buying books, they'd already gone way up in value, you know what I mean? So now it's ridiculous, you know, $30,000 a book, stuff like that, where books will come up that, you know, are just one of only a hundred made or 200, you know, and then, and half of those got destroyed or lost in time and blah, blah, blah. So these things are, are really evaluating a lot, but you know, I've got like, like a, a Stephen King signed 
uh, dead zone. Mm. And that that's worth $800. Yeah, right. You know cool. what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, but if you could find like the stand or what, some of his books are worth ten, twelve thousand dollars $12,000, you know. But what makes them worth that much? Because I'm a, I'm a big Stephen King fan. Well, Stephen, he quit signing. Uh, like Ringo did it too. And that, that appreciates the value significantly. When did he start doing that? I'm not sure when, when Ringo did it. Gosh, it's been almost 20 years ago. I think he, he said, no more signing. I'll take a picture. You know, when the selfies came out or all that or whatever. And I'm not sure when King did it, but, um, and it's not like he won't sign anything. Like if you probably, uh, he'll sign X amount of his new book. Gotcha. You know what I mean? It's just for the lucky or whatever. So Crowley, the code, what's the code you're talking about? He would use, uh, just different words. So say, you know, it's, it's, uh, this can. So he'll say, uh, Take the can in your hand and, and you know, uh, throw it in the yard. When really he means take your fear. Because can means fear. But that's just a stupid example. Yeah, I know what you're saying. Like, it's, 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 um, there's been magicians in history that are like Aleister Crowley that claim to talk to angels. One was a guy named John D. And he was Queen Elizabeth I's seer. And they would hire a seer in t- times of war and stuff to, to be able to tell them a little bit about what's going to happen, right? But that particular man, John D., started talking to these angels that gave him a whole angelic uh, alphabet and, oh my gosh, thousands and thousands of pages of just scriptures from the heavens. And, you know, all these years later, you can buy this stuff. I have a tome from him that's must be 1200 pages um a lot of really positive stuff just like the scriptures in the bible or whatever so all these years later crowley took bits it started with the golden dawn which was a first one of the first secret societies you know um that were practicing magic at the time when Women will be burned at the stake. Right. You know what I mean? The next thing you know, she's people getting burned at the stake. seizures that they think they're witches or something. Yeah, so King Solomon is big in this too. He's one of the first guys. And there's an argument if King Solomon actually wrote, you know, these rituals or whatever. But a lot of the same stuff from King Solomon bled over into what later became the Golden Dawn. And this is stories from the earliest stories of magic also come from... If you've ever seen the Baphomet, looks like a goat's head, mm-hmm. but it has a body of a female, but the male from the ways down and cloven hoofs looks a lot like what Christians paint Satan to look yeah, like, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. With the goat's legs and mm-hmm. all. The Baphomet was invented by uh, the Knights. What the hell? What, were the Knights they called? Templar? Knights Templar, yes. Yeah. And, you know, at the time they were being forced. They were on the side of, of, of the Christians. Of course. The Knights Templar, behind the, the, the thrones back and their countries back, knew that it was wrong what they were doing. And they're saying, what God would let us do this? Mm-hmm. We're fighting, we're slaughtering families in the name mm-hmm. of this God. This, yeah. this isn't their God. And so in secret, they started a society and they used the Baphomet as the image of God, really, um, that 
they were killing in the name of. But um, it turned into a, a meaning of balance, this Baphomet symbol. Because as, as happens in most all genocides, it gets found out and the world finds out or it, it, it ends. And then either like the Christians came to their senses and quit wanting to kill all the Muslims and Jews because they weren't Christian, you know. When that ended, the work that the Templars had done kind of melded with the work that King Solomon and the Egyptian magicians had done. And with, with the Jewish Holy Kabbalah, Christianity, Muslim, Hinduism, Buddhism, and Judaism all became what we call the occult because it's a little bit of everything in it except for the parts that were hidden. So when I say that the early magicians like Crowley or Spare, Austin Osmond Spare is another great one. Oh my gosh, Eliphas Levi to H.P. H. P. Blavatsky and all these early, early magicians all stem from the thought of one God. So Christians killing Muslims or Muslims killing Jews and vice versa over their God was unthinkable to an occultist. But the point that God is out there is the main point. So what, what an occultist tries to do, whether it's an alchemist or if you're part of, say, the OTO or the, or the, or the other AA, um, you know, you, you're trying to meet your angel, so the whole point of why I'm an occultist and what I do what I do is I'm trying to find my guardian angel, which we believe everyone has it. We also aren't stupid. It could be everyone has an angel that, that can guard them, but it's in our own subconscious. So that's where all the meditation and the yogic practice and pranayama, breathing techniques, to try and get into this stage that's right between sleeping and waking because that's the stage where the veil comes down between your conscious mind and your subconscious mind. And when that veil comes down and it unlocks your subconscious, that's when we feel we can travel beyond to the astral planes or to, some people believe it's alternate alternate dimensions or whatever, and there we will find our angel, of which there are billions, just like there's humans. If mm. you believe in the spirit, and that we're just walking around in these meat suits until we die, and that we don't just die and all our consciousness goes away and we rot in a box for the worms, our body dies, and then we go on, right? Yeah. And so that's the big question, where? Because yeah. no one's ever come back to say, yeah, it's this. Well, they claim to. <laughs> you know, yeah, there's, there's claims of seeing the light and coming the, the tunnel, which, you know, speaking of drugs, if you, if you do the ahuasca experience which uh, ahuasca is like mushrooms are to LSD. And it's, it's completely natural, right out of the ground. And in both of these experiences, you're thrown into an abyss and you come to a tunnel with a light at the end of it. And then you're shot out of that tunnel into an alternate dimension. And angels come and they tell you the meaning of life they tell you what god is 
they tell you what you should do and how you can do it, like if you're trying to quit drinking or you've been abused all your life by your parents, the ayahuasca experience fixes it. And it doesn't erase it. You can still remember. I have a good friend. He was abused his whole life by both of his parents, right? Never told anyone because he was so embarrassed and they told him what would happen. So he went through his teenage years and they stopped when he got big. You know, it stopped and when he could say no. It's just sick. So, and he didn't want them to go to jail or whatever. So you still have love for your parents, even though they're monsters, right? So he told me, he sat down, we talked for like an hour backstage and he was telling me all his parents, what they did. And I was like, oh my God, well, and he, he said it was like carrying a bag of bricks on my back my whole life. Every night before I went to sleep, every morning when I woke up, all I could think about was getting out of this life and getting this feeling, this weight off my back, right? So he, he tried all kinds of therapies, all these things he did, doctors, drugs, all everything, nothing worked. And so he's very suicidal at this point, right? Every night, he said, before I go to bed, I think of killing myself. And so he spends $1,500, flies to Peru, where the ayahuasca plant grows, hires a guru, which is like a shaman, medicine man, you know, down in Peru. This guy makes the ayahuasca. He puts it in a, a bowl, just like a witch, brewing it up, man. Brewed up, made this stuff. He drinks it. Goes to the abyss, gets shot out into this alternate dimension, sees the angels. The angels come down, tell him who's God, who, who God is, tell, tells him what the meaning of life is, tells him everything, right? And I said to him, I said, tell me, you know, tell Yeah, why wouldn't goes, everybody want to know that? Because he's like, oh, I don't remember. I just remember the angel telling me it all and me getting it. And I, when, when I came out of the trip, I, I got it and I... And I go, and he's, the weight was gone. And I go, well, do, did it erase your memory of these bad things? No. It's just now when I think of them, I go, eh. Yeah. And it's gone. So he does this trip, and these things happen, the angels, and he sees these visions, and the, he's being told these things. It releases or takes away. He comes back to reality, doesn't remember what they told him who god is what they told him or what god is but he knows that he's been released from something and he knows that he knows that it's out but he does, it's, it's real they've taken it out of his his memory then I it's guess. almost though they reveal to release him but you know it's almost like the uh, movie where they you know look at the light oh yeah and we're going to remove the memory from it yep which you know could for some people we like are you insane like that's crazy my other buddy did it it's legal by no the way. but i mean like no, I the mean, reality of that it's like come on man. i know i know well but there's other people like friends of mine that do these journeys and it has completely turned their life 180 yeah for the better imagine having that kind of weight on you and then one night of of a of a journey when was the last time you saw this guy I just saw him actually on tour in Texas now. And he feels the same. Yeah, he feels you can great. Tell. 
He feels great. And, and, and it's amazing. He barely even remembered him telling me the whole story. Like when I'd said, are you still good? And all that. Yeah. And he, but he did say, you know, he wants to do it again because it does seem to wear off. He goes, now it's, I've kind of started to get bothered by some of my thoughts again hmm. and I'm not used to it. So I might do it again and go talk to him again, you know, on a lesser scale, my it's almost went, like doing the fifth step again. Yeah. Fourth yes. and fifth step. Release all that crap. Yep. Between that time that I saw him, this was 2018, and then seeing him the next time, in between that time, they've opened centers in America, and America has yet to make it illegal because it's not a problem, right? For what he did? For so Ahuasca. Ahuasca. Really? Orlando. So one of my good buddies that lost his daughter tragically and had all this weight and it, cause it was a drug overdose and mm. he did as best me. as he could as a dad and said, I, we had a great relationship. She had a fantastic person, great job. It, my, I felt I really raised a great girl and yeah. how her, could this gets happened? her boyfriend and her boyfriend was a junkie, I guess. And that's how it wakes up dead. And so he blamed himself, right? And, right? and she didn't even live in Florida, but, you know, he still blamed himself. Like, she didn't call me, you know? So he goes and says, you know, he hears about the ayahuasca and how it changes people and, and can, can alleviate some weight that you're putting on yourself. So did he go do it? Yeah, he saw and talked to his daughter. And again, he couldn't remember what exactly was said, but he, he doesn't have the guilt anymore of, of mm. that. So she told him it was okay. And, and, right. and then... Did the eye thing like Men in Black, maybe. Yeah. I don't know why they would, but... Well, I guess if it's a reality, if this is like something that, you know, if angels are coming and revealing who God is, it, you know, everybody would go do this trip because and we'd all know. You know? Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. Wouldn't you? I mean, I would want to know. I would. For somebody like my father, because of course I think about my father, he was such a good man and i loved him so much such a good dad and just a good husband and just a good american man he mm -hmm. was just a good man yeah and he got cancer and died young 63 right and he was a christian and my father you know he was special because you know we were irish catholic too so we were catholic catholic yeah, yeah. crosses in the house and sunday school i played for the church basketball team, all that stuff, you know what I mean? And when I turned 16, me and my sister both, when we turned 16, because she got it two years before me, and she got to quit going to church. And he said, you're 16 now, and I hope that you follow uh, uh, God's path, mm -hmm. but I'm not going to force you to go to church and force religion on you now, you know what I mean? Yeah. I hope you made a good Christian, whatever. And then like that, you know? And then, because our, our thing wasn't about, we didn't care. We were 15, 16, we were getting into metallic or whatever we yeah. didn't care about god at that point um but we cared about missing football on sunday so i would be bitching all the time we're gonna miss the game because i had to go to church and church 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 you know but i i did that to my daughter too and i did the same thing yeah but is your daughter though she's how old now she's 25 so for 20 20 years were you raising her as a Christian or were you yes, raising well, her? Yes, her, well, her mother's Christian. Okay. So, and and then, so as an occultist, did you guys conflict there? No, because I did lie about things to my daughter that I thought were detrimental, detrimental to she, her normalness, normalcy. 
you know, I, I, I didn't want to raise her like a, you know, an occultist and a but drug addict. When you addict. say occultist, people think of a Satanist or something. You have That's to right. clarify, like, yeah, to clarify, you're not worshiping the devil. No. It's a, it's, it's not that cut and dry, right? It's just yeah. a different way of looking at life like, and spirit, so spiritual listen. world. Yeah. Like, so I have used um, demons. And so someone would say, well, then you're a Satanist. Because demons. What do you mean you've used demons? So there's rituals that we do as the cultists. And basically, you, you, you have a circle and you can close it off to where nothing can be come into that circle in the universe except for if invoked or evoked by you. So you can bring angels, Raphael. I, I know angels. I can bring them in. And it's not materialistic things. You won't get that if you want money or whatever. But if you want to try and fix like your life and become more lucky and a better person, then you can do rituals and create. So a ritual for me, would say and say let's not even say angels there's also planetary magic i could talk more freely about planetary magic okay so i'll say it's mercury is the planet so i'm gonna do a ritual mercury is known for being the messenger planet so say i have a new demo and i want to get this thing heard that's all i want if they like it they like it but let it get out there and get heard so i'll go and i'll Okay, the mercury is number eight on the tree of life, so I'll get eight candles. It's it's it has different attributes, right? So uh, its colors orange. So all those eight candles will be orange. I'll put orange eight orange candles around it. You know, I'll I'll say a little. I'll make a sacrifice, which so if I remember correctly, mercury brass. So I'll get a brass bowl. I'll take the time and etch in Mercury's symbol into this brass bowl. You know, put that brass bowl. That's all. Everything's ready too. There's all the attributes are you can find in books. You know, so say that the incense might be frankincense mm -hmm. for this particular planet, right? And there's planetary time. So you say I have between six fifty-eight. It's very very detailed. So. Mercury comes under Earth's influence between 658 and 751, right? So I know how I have almost an hour, you know, to, to do this ritual while, while the vibrations are online with, with my planet, right? So if I'm facing east, I know, where, I know where that planet is in the sky and what time it's going to be there for me to, to, to make a sacrifice. Hey, it's, uh, I can't remember the fruit that they like, but there's like... There's attributes. So say it's a, an orange. So I'll yeah, chop gotcha. up an orange, yeah. put it in that brass bowl, mm -hmm. say, here's my sacrifice, you know, please uh, let my new song get heard. And But I'm in a trance state when I'm doing it. And so everything is... How do you get there? Yeah, that's pranayama. It's, it's a breathing, te a yogic breathing technique. And anyone can really do it, but it takes a lot of years of practice to be able to, to, to get into a state where... Again, you're right in between sleep and wake. Sure. And the veil is lifted between your subconscious and the, the only way to get and, and vibration. So it's vibration and, and accessing the subconscious. And you can put, and it's all, about, it's all about your will. And so 
we believe that you can create your reality with your will. And so here's a great example. I try and explain it with, with this. And of course, it's way more detailed. And geez, if I had a dime for every book that I've researched. But um, in a nutshell, if you look into the mirror every day and say, I'm a loser. I've just... You're manifesting it. Yeah, right? And so, on the other hand, if you look in, I'm a driver, I'm a winner, things are going to change, I can feel it. It's going to change. You are going to be a winner, you know? And if you you tell yourself you're a loser, you're going to be a loser. That's magic at its most basic element, working. So if I can do that, and we know people recognize that that works, right? Then why, who's to say that I can't take the vibrational power? That has been measured, by the way, the moon, she moves our seas and our women's menstrual cycles. So there is power that comes from these different planets. So I don't think that it's, it's that ridiculous to think that I could call down power and manifest here on my part of Earth that I'm in and make it work for me. Right. Interesting. And I mean, look at my career even, you know, since I started magic and I look at it, it's just been up the whole way. And so you could relate this to the Christian's theory of prayer. Couldn't you? Absolutely. Yeah. If, if, if if it's, especially if, if, if there's nothing out there and it's just simply anyone can just manifest anything, then that means that, the universe is God. We are all God then. There's no well, God. Well, if you think about God and creation, then yes, the universe was created by God. We are all from, you know, from nothing. It's the the, the massive question that I'm going to ask is who created God? Yeah. Who created whoever created, you know what I mean? And Where did it that's start? That's the endless question. <clears throat> yeah. And so, and and the human mind, just like we can't grasp infinity, we couldn't grasp what God is. And I'll tell you, I'm in a business that there's Luciferians everywhere. And you can call me crazy, but I live in it. And I won't expose it or do anything. But I will say that my band, if you have tracked and followed our career, you will see we got to a level and we stayed there. And it's simply because we wouldn't sell our soul. You know, if you talk in 20 years, a number one hits, why aren't we in stadiums? Why is uh, Sam Smith? I mean, and it's because they're straight dealing their souls to the bad guy. And I'm not saying it's, it's Lucifer, but I'm just telling you that there, um, there's, there's things out there that I... Is that it the, are you talking about the classic, we sold our soul for rock and roll? Like, you know, we're, I want the success, so I'm going to, you can have my soul, give me number one. Yeah, but, but, and I I can't even say too much, man, but there's people out there that can make you famous. Yeah. But you have to, to worship what they worship. Yeah, I get what you're saying. That's what I'm saying. Like, you know, you sold your soul. But they're the ones that give you the power. So the worshiping of, of Lucifer really means nothing to the artist it's 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 the people with the power that can just make you overnight they could make us right now pete and shannon show right and if if we said if the right if we knew the right people that and and said yes to what they offer then we'd be 
multi a hundred millionaires next year and be famous but they don't approach us and you know why because they know we would say no i love religion and i and i believe in god and i feel like it's organized religion that's the devil and that the christian church for instance christ his word you know christ is the guy that said love one another that was the yeah. He hung with Christ. lepers, and he didn't. He He's didn't the one that brought love yeah. into the world. Man. Well, forgiveness so, rules. Yeah, love and forgiveness, but love one another. You know, yeah. what a concept. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon on the Pharmacy Podcast.